Good morning. The Marines have their few and their faithful, and uh, so I appreciate you this morning. Last week, uh, by the way, turn to First um, Corinthians chapter four. First Corinthians four. And then turn to 2 Corinthians 4. Sorry. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> we know where Corinthians is now. <clears throat> Last week, we looked at chapter 3, and we saw that the Apostle Paul was indeed the genuine article. He was the real deal. He wasn't like the Judaizers who tried to press the Corinthian believers into keeping the impossible demands of the Old Testament law. The law was glorious. Through it was the ministry of, um, though it was the ministry of death and condemnation, through the law, God shows sinners their sin, shows us our sin. God never intended a sinner to enter into heaven through the works of the law. But Paul identified his ministry, if you, um, if you look at chapter 3 in verse 6, as a ministry of the new covenant. In verse 8, as um, a ministry of the Spirit. Verse 9, ministry of righteousness. And we could all roll these up into the ministry of the gospel. So this was Paul's ministry in contrast to that of the Judaizers. Paul's desire was to see men and women come to Christ through faith and um, then to become like him by our occupation with him, seeing him in scripture and following him. In this part of Paul's second epistle, we label chapter four, the apostle addresses the temptation of giving up, of losing heart. He, um, he says, he writes in verse one, uh, therefore since we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. So he's, um, uh, he says we don't, we don't lose heart, and then he gives reasons for not quitting. We may not realize the temptation to despair, to, um, to faint-heartedness or quitting in the service of the Lord. Sadly, in the king's service, quitting is an option. It is uh, a possibility. It is a response to God's call. So to gain a, further, a, a fuller appreciation for this temptation, we'd like to look briefly at the scripture record of one who did quit, and his name is John Mark. We find him in the book of Acts. Uh, he's identified in Colossians 4 as a cousin of Barnabas, uh, perhaps led to Christ by Peter. And in Acts chapter 12, verse 25, Barnabas and Saul took Mark with them on their first missionary journey in about 46 AD. 
um, John Mark assisted them in proclaiming the gospel in Salamis, we see in Acts 13.5. But early in the journey, Mark departed from them, returning to Jerusalem, we see in Acts 13.13, 13, and went not with them to the work. He quit. We don't know Mark's reasons for giving up, but we offer the following reasons as uh, ones that any believer might give in Mark's position. The first is, um, the first discouragement is, the gospel ministry is hard going. Only a few years ago, Peter preached in Jerusalem and thousands flocked to the Lord. Our message is simple enough, but it seems to be falling on deaf ears. A second complaint that Mark could have had was, um, we are hard pressed on every side. The persecution here is wearying. It's discouraging. Somebody could get hurt out here. And then a third complaint, my body is falling apart. I need to think about myself, enjoy some downtime. I need to spend more time relaxing or working out. Paul addresses each of these complaints in this chapter. He provides several reasons for not giving up and he closes with a couple considerations. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize through uh, examples in your word that um, there is a temptation to lose heart, to be discouraged, to give up. And we pray that you would visit us this morning with uh, a new appreciation for why we should continue, why we should be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your work. We um, ask in Jesus' name, amen. Looking again at verse one, um, therefore, that is in light of the contrast of the old and new covenants, that we looked at in chapter three. And uh, since we have this ministry that was um, of the new covenant, of the spirit of righteousness that we saw in chapter three, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. We sang that song, I didn't realize um, how appropriate it was to today's message, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord. Paul was one who knew the mercy of the Lord and everything that he had received. He deserved something else and the Lord substituted that something else with uh, ministry among other things. But uh, Paul was one who could sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. He could sing. With his mouth, he could make known God's faithfulness. And uh, we, um, we appreciate that, uh, that we could sing this morning about the mercies of the Lord. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians uh, epistle, he said, one whom the Lord in his mercy made trustworthy. So um, although Paul was a, had been a blasphemer and um, had opposed the gospel, now the Lord in his mercy was gonna make him a, uh, a spokesman for himself. Well, let's read. First, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter two and uh, verse two. 
I'm sorry, verse, chapter four, verse two. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul, attests in verse two to the simplicity of his message. He said that um, uh, we've renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully. We're not manipulating God's word to, um, uh, to get you to do something uh, that's wrong. We don't twist the scripture this um, is probably reference to the Judaizers who sought to capture the saints into law keeping. In any religion, any world religion, we find a set of rules that if you follow, you will gain merit from God and perhaps even heaven. And it's this, this same conflict that um, that the Judaizers brought into light because they wanted the Corinthians to revert to this law keeping as a, a way to approach God. But Paul says, um, uh, we're not walking in craftiness. We're, um, we're not manipulating the truth. 
the apostles were not luring people into a dark alley to, uh, to bash them over the head, um, but instead openly inviting them to a relationship with the lover of their souls. We apostles present ourselves to every man's conscience as a revealer of God's truth. God sees, God knows. However, in verse three, we see that many are blinded, many don't respond. For even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, should shine on them. If our gospel is totally covered, if it is concealed, it is concealed from the lost. The God of this age, that is Satan, has blinded those who don't believe so that the light of God's salvation would not shine on them. How can people be so dull to their own need to the provision that God has provided them to the invitations of his word. Well, it's because they are blind. Satan has blinded them. God is not responsible for this blindness. It's something that Satan has, has given. It's um, something that um, Paul is not responsible for. He instead sought to um, uh, to preach the gospel, for the people to, to believe the gospel. The Lord told Saul, the Lord Jesus told Saul of Tarsus when he arrested him on the road to Damascus, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This was the um, commission that, that God gave Paul. He, he's trying to deliver the Jews and the Gentiles from this blindness, from this darkness. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Thankfully, this um, satanic blindness is not incurable. God is able to cure, he's able to overcome this blindness. So that as we pray for our loved ones who are perishing, as we do on Wednesday evenings, as um, we anticipate doing this afternoon, uh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's a spiritual battle. It's a fight. We're trying to wrestle people from this darkness. Just a note here about the gospel of the glory of Christ in this verse, in uh, verse four. What is the gospel? It's good news. What is the uh, gospel of the Lord Jesus. Well, it's, um, it's good news about the Lord Jesus. It's news that the world needs to hear, desperately needs to, to follow. And what about the Lord Jesus? Well, it's the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. 
His glory is his moral excellence, his compassion for the lost, his uncompromising righteousness, his mercy, his pity for the helpless, his generosity in offering himself as a substitute for hopeless sinners on the cross. Simply stated, the gospel is that Jesus died according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again according to the scriptures. He is risen, he's reigning, he's returning. He is the Lord. One Bible commentator emphasizes that Christ in glory is not the carpenter of Nazareth. He's not the savior stretched on the cross of Calvary, but he's the Lord who died and was buried and rose again and is even now enthroned at God's right hand. And the gospel is as effective today as it was 2,000 years ago. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The first reason not to lose heart in ministering is that God tells us beforehand, we are up against a formidable adversary, a powerful foe, but that God is stronger. God is infinitely more powerful. He is sovereign. The second reason is the privilege of carrying the light of God's glory. We have that privilege as believers to carry this light. And we see that in verse five. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. How did the apostle preach Jesus? Well, think about after his conversion on the road to Damascus, what did Paul do? Luke wrote in the book of Acts, then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus, immediately, he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. He didn't have to go to seminary. He didn't have to go to Bible college. He didn't have to go through specialized intern training. He immediately preached that Jesus is the son of God. In uh, further in Acts 9, we read that Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. What a message. In uh, Acts 9:27, he preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So we, um, we see Paul able and willing, compelled to preach Jesus. He, um, as a new believer, had no reluctance, no reserve, no fear of insulting anyone. But from the beginning of the, his ministry, he preached Jesus. What makes the Lord Jesus the best of all subjects to preach? He's the bread of life, the chief shepherd, the desire of the nations, the faithful witness, God, blessed, the Holy One of God, 
the I am. Emmanuel, King of Kings, Lamb of God, the life, the light of the world, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord of glory, the Lord of lords. Jesus is the best of all subjects to preach. By contrast, we are the poorest of all subjects to preach. And Paul says that about himself. He says, um, we preach ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. To convey something of the dignity of receiving the light of the glory of the knowledge, the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, Paul reaches back to uh, Genesis. He reads in verse six, he wrote, wrote in verse six, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Imagine what the um, creation was like with no light. Imagine the uh, incredible darkness of that, um, of creation. And yet it was on the first day of creation that God flooded the universe with light. What a contrast, what a change. God bathed his creation in light. And on the same scale of power and privilege, God shines in our hearts the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you see the privilege there? That that same creative element that God used to bring light to the universe, he shines in our hearts the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why the face of the Lord Jesus at the end of verse 6? I believe that's to communicate something of the majesty and the dignity of the Lord Jesus. The hymn writer wrote, Lamb of God, our souls adore thee, while upon thy face we gaze. There the Father's love and glory shine in all their brightest rays. So we see the light, God shining in our hearts, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What an honor, what a privilege to, um, to have that light. He um, further writes that um, in verse seven, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Would you invest, would you entrust your most valued treasure to a clay jar? God did. The apostles, the Corinthians, the saints at Calvary Bible Chapel are unlikely custodians or keepers of God's precious possession. Imagine the um, uh, pot, a terracotta pot, a clay pot. I, I can buy one at the um, orchard for a couple of dollars. God's good news, the light of the knowledge of his glory is kept in this pot. It's, um, it's housed there, it's, it's kept in this clay jar. Earthen vessels 
marred unsightly, bearing wealth no thought can know, heavenly treasure beaming light, uh, brightly, Christ revealed in saints below. Why? Uh, God wants to make his glory known. He wants to reveal his treasure to us. But why in jars of clay? Why in pottery? Perhaps it's so that we won't be tempted to credit ourselves with his excellence. Well, he says so. He says as much that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Is there a temptation to dip into the Father's account and take something for ourselves? God will not share his glory. He will not give his glory to another. The clay pot may boast in God, in his grace, but it will not boast in itself. There is a third reason for not losing hope, and it is that we are to lay down our lives for the brethren. In verses eight and nine, we read of the apostle's experience. He says, um, we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And as we see the life of Paul, he was, um, he was stoned uh, almost to death. He was um, uh, beaten with rods three times. He was shipwrecked. And in all this, uh, he writes, we are hard pressed on every side. Paul will refer to these afflictions later on in the letter, but for now, let's realize the, um, the hardships that Paul endured. Those scars on his back were reopened by, uh, by beatings. He subjected himself to the persecution of his um, his uh, adversaries, of God's adversaries. But he says in verse eight that we are perplexed but not in despair. It's an interesting word study. That word perplexed means um, I have no way. I have, I'm at a dead end. I'm at wit's end corner. I'm at a loss. But when he says we are not in despair, it's uh, the same root word in the original, but he tacks on a prefix to it, and it means to be totally without a way. Paul says, I'm without a way. I've run into uh, a dead end here, but I'm not totally without a way because I can look up. I can look to the Lord and find my resource there. So we're, we're perplexed, we're hard pressed, um, but we're not despairing. The dying of the Lord Jesus in verse, um, verse, eight, verse 10, what does that mean? Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. We could um, explain that as um, uh, the dying of the Lord Jesus that the apostles carried as exposure to violence and persecution. Brother MacDonald writes in his commentary, the life of the servant of God is one of constant dying. Just as the Lord Jesus himself in his lifetime was constantly exposed to violence and persecution, so those who follow in his steps will meet the same treatment. 
The Apostle Paul revealed that by enduring persecution, by enduring the dying, by carrying the dying of the Lord Jesus, we exhibit the life of Jesus in our bodies. We are by nature children of ease and comfort. We choose self-preservation over death. We avoid hardships naturally. For a person to willingly deny himself and take up his cross and um, uh, is, um, is unnatural and exhibits this life of Christ, this supernatural life of the Lord Jesus. He further um, expands on that in verse 11. He says, um, for we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. It's hard to speak authoritatively on this verse because I've not endured the um, persecution of which Paul writes. But from what I've seen of persecution, I see that um, Yes, indeed, the life of Jesus, that supernatural life, is communicated through those who patiently, willingly, um, sometimes even cheerfully endure that, um, that oppression uh, of persecution. Verse 12, so death is working in us, but life in you. Is this not a parent's love? The parent sets aside his own comforts. He sacrifices his own success so that his children may enjoy success. The apostles so affectionately longed for these Corinthians as they did for the Thessalonians that they were well pleased to impart to them not only the gospel of God but also their own lives because they had become dear to them. How does one say I love you without using the word love? Paul seems to have done so in this chapter. In verse five, we are your bondservants for Jesus' sake. In verse 12, death is working in us, but life in you. And he'll write in verse 15, all things are for your sakes. We're thinking about you. Our emphasis is on you Corinthians. Paul's preference was for the Corinthians even in life as a fulfillment of um, the other John 3.16. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, 1 John 3.16. We recognize love, we've experienced love because Jesus laid down his life for us. Now go and do likewise, the Apostle John says. Lay down your lives for the brethren. There is yet a fourth reason the Apostle gives for not losing heart and it is that we are compelled to speak. We're compelled to communicate this gospel. In verse 13, he said, and since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. 
This was the spirit of the psalmist, Psalm 116. He spoke out of compulsion, out of necessity, out of obligation. We see this illustrated in, in scripture by the two um, spies who heard the report of the, the evil report of the 10 spies when they came back from the land of Canaan. Moses sent them out to, to spy the land and uh, these, uh, these 10 spies just gave a, 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 um, a scathing report. They, they said, we're not able, we're like grasshoppers before these, um, uh, before these uh, sons of Anak. And so Joshua and Caleb said, no, it's not that way at all. It's a good land and God will surely bring us in. Our God is greater than these enemies. They were compelled, they couldn't stay silent. They had to come forward and speak. Paul and Barnabas were compelled to run in among the multitude at Lystra because um, they, the people of Lystra were, uh, were gonna sacrifice oxen to them. They thought they were gods. And uh, Paul and Barnabas said, You're, no way, no way, we're men just like you. You're not gonna sacrifice to us. Paul was uh, further provoked when he was in Athens and he saw the city given over to idols. He was compelled to reason daily in the synagogue and in the marketplace. Woe is me, Paul would write, if I preach not the gospel. So we're compelled to speak. We see the misery of our coworkers and our, our neighbors and our family, and uh, we are uh, obligated, we are indebted to, to speak to them. In verse 14, Paul says, um, Paul writes, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and present us with you. Paul was compelled to speak because he realized his future was bound up with the, the Corinthians. He sought their best. Those are interesting words that um, God would present us with you. God will present the apostles with the other believers, with the Corinthian believers. And um, um, without stretching the verse too far, I wonder if there will come that time when God will assemble the believers from Calvary Bible Chapel in glory for a time of accounting, for a time of, uh, of addressing us as a group for what we accomplished on the earth. The apostles' burden was for the brethren. In verse 15, he says, all things are for your sakes. Speaks of his selflessness and his, um, his commitment to the welfare of these Corinthian believers. Immature, problematic, but beloved. And it also speaks of, um, of his jealousy for God's glory, that uh, grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Paul loved to hear thanksgiving to the Lord. And he realized that this magnified God's grace in the thanksgiving and that uh, God would receive the credit 
that he's due. God deserves much more than we give him in our deepest moments of devotion. And um, so we uh, were compelled to, to speak and to, uh, to give God glory. For these four reasons, Paul encourages us not to lose heart. And then he adds some further considerations in the remaining verses. He says in verse 16, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. I don't know of anyone who is gonna argue against the fact that our outward man is perishing. There whole, uh, there's a whole uh, cosmetics industry that's, um, that's built on trying to reverse this process. But the consolation here is that the inward man is being renewed day by day. I see new wrinkles, new gray hairs or less gray hairs. And I realize that as true as that is, with proper care, my inward man is being renewed day by day. Just as fast as the old is perishing, that inward is being renewed. Years ago, um, I talked with uh, Dorothy Allensworth. I've told some of you this story already. Uh, Dorothy is a dear saint. Um, 15 years ago, she was in her late 80s. She's with the Lord today. But um, she was racked by afflictions, by ailments. She, I could list um, several things that if you had one of them, you'd be in pain. You'd be uh, hard to start in the morning, hard to get going. So uh, I took the liberty of asking Dorothy one day, I said, Dorothy, if you could turn the clock back 10 years, would you do that? She thought for a second and she said, no, I've really uh, learned too much about the Lord Jesus in the last 10 years. You see, her outward man, her outward person was perishing, but her inward man had been renewing during those 10 years. She was not willing to give that up, even to enjoy uh, relief from her afflictions. The inward man grows in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus, transforming us into the likeness of the Lord Jesus as we occupy ourselves with him. Paul wrote in verse 17, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Affliction is working for us. I thought uh, it kept me from getting to work on time. I thought it kept me from uh, doing the things uh, um, that, uh, that require strength and agility and endurance. But uh, Paul says, no, affliction's working for us. What does affliction achieve? Well, several things. In 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, we uh, see that Affliction shows us the genuineness of our faith. In uh, Psalm 19, verses 67 and 71, it causes us to dig into God's word and to grow in obedience. Affliction has that purpose. In Romans 5, 3 and 4, affliction produces perseverance. 
In Hebrews 12, 11, affliction yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And in James 1, 3, and 4, it produces patience. We have affliction working for us. So we can rejoice in that. The grievous, the most grievous afflictions are light when compared with the weight of glory. What is glory here? It's being with Jesus and conforming to his character. There's nothing that is going to compare with that moment, that uh, eternity of being with the Lord Jesus. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What are the things that we see? Brother MacDonald writes in his commentary, they're not the goal of one's existence. Here they refer primarily to the hardships, the trials, the sufferings which Paul endured. These were incidental to his ministry. The great object of his ministry is what was not seen. This might include the glory of Christ, the blessing of one's fellow men, and the reward that awaits the faithful servant of Christ at the judgment seat. You know, we didn't finish the story of John Mark. He, um, he had abandoned his post. He had quit his calling. You may have quit the Lord's service. You may have stopped speaking for him. Your departure may not have been as dramatic as boarding a ship and heading in the opposite direction as Mark appears to have. Jeremiah's was more subtle. Jeremiah said, I will not make mention of him nor any more speak his name. The Lord didn't give up on Mark. The Lord didn't give up on Jeremiah. The Lord doesn't give up on you if you have lost heart. Mark returned to service and Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Barnabas took him to minister in Cyprus. Uh, we read in Acts 15, 39. This Mark is the author of our second gospel. Mark proved himself to be a valuable worker. Perhaps the apostle Paul said it best to Timothy during his final imprisonment, he said, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize again the temptation to throwing in the towel. We realize that there are forces that work against our uh, ministry and uh, we we thank you that the encouragements are always larger than the discouragements. We pray as we um, are confronted with temptations that we would answer them with your word and with the examples that you hold before us and the, um, the glory of being with you in a coming day, perhaps today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.